start asking any questions you want about bringing the practice back into the world. Um, it'll be more talking for those of you who want to integrate. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, and we're not going to do a talk tonight about it, so it's important if you have any questions to ask, or we can think of things to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that I'm afraid I'm losing my concentration. Uh Like when I'm at home, should I sit once with concentration and once with something? Or should I You're not losing your concentration, you're developing a different kind. So it's momentary concentration rather than fixed. Um, You have to have concentration to be aware in each moment, but what happens is that instead of the object staying the same in fixed concentration, in in mindfulness you're you're being aware of each moment as it is. Uh It it is harder, it is harder. Uh, And it's fine if, you know, in this tradition, we tend to be teaching the metta as a concentration practice, but any, basically, uh, you could do, it's very arbitrary, you could do five sittings of Vipassana and two of concentration, or six of concentration, one of Vipassana, or ten minutes of metta or concentration and fifty minutes of... It's, I don't, I'm not saying should. I, I think that... Uh, it's really up to each person, and uh, it, I wouldn't make a general recommendation at all. It's, it's t- some people tend to be really drawn, for example, to Vipassana, and they w- I wouldn't recommend doing any concentration if they are. And other people <coughs> might be really drawn to concentration and not to Vipassana. So it, it really depends on the, each, per- each individual person and where they are in their practice. Zero. <laughs> it depends on the person, of course, but if a person is ripe, this is a fine length. Yeah. That's your favorite thing. <laughs> That is my favorite thing, actually. Except that I drive a lot in traffic, so um, I, I'm mindful of aversion when I drive. <laughs> About 99% of my driving is watching my thoughts ripping people to threads in my mind when, when they drive bad. You know, I'm a real aversion type in the car. Are you driving on country roads or in traffic? (laughs) 
Well, it's, I can be more serious about this. It's like the, um, the physical sensations of the steering wheel, you know, the coldness or how it gets warm and being able to touch into how your posture is and seeing. There's, there's a, uh, I've practiced a lot, like when I'm driving and I'm not enraged in traffic, um, where I'll, I'll be aware of, you know, hearing, touching, or sitting. T- instead of, like, the breath as an anchor, I tend to be aware of sitting, touching, you know, some, some kind of rhythm of hearing, touching. Uh, not getting so deeply focused that I can't drive. You know, you, in some ways, <laughs> mindfulness is really great when you're driving because it's not that it's like concentration. You're really aware of... You can be aware of so many things, and it's just a matter of not losing oneself in thought so much. But anything physical, the, the seat that you're sitting on, the, 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 the temperature, I'm aware of my hands a lot. Um, uh, well, I love music when I'm driving, but sometimes I don't. You know, sometimes I just pay attention without the music. And so, when I'm tired, or I tend to put music on and use that as a as a awareness. No, because you'll be listening anyway, whether you're listening to and uh, you know the wind in the windows and it's it's like I think that if you're driving long distances without music it's almost <laughs> <laughs> you know you can use it as another anchor yeah I mean you can lose yourself in music or you can be aware of music it's the same as everything and we all do both I know when, when yeah. one summer I was driving a truck, you know, driving a big truck long distances up and down the East Coast and didn't have a radio in the truck. And that was fine with me. But I found myself almost narrating what I was doing. You know, looking in the rearview mirror, keeping right so many miles over the speed limit and just, it's like you're just making a game of being in the driver's seat, so that you're not just sitting there spacing out about the past, the future, imagination, fantasy, whatever. That's what's really mindless. But if you're really present with the act of driving, there's seeing, there's thinking, there's planning your next gas stop, there's, there's all the sensations of the pedals and the, the feet in the pedals and the seat and the steering wheel and the shifting and if you stay present with what you're actually doing, it can be very entertaining. I mean, it can be very present, making interesting, and not just a boring, long drive across the country. But it's how present you stay with what's actually happening. In in traffic, I tend to note judging a lot. Thank <laughs> you.
<laughs> well, I'd be happy to. I mean, um, there's a certain place in practice where you'll notice when you're sitting that there's more energy. You know, and we're doing this practice, it's like blowing up a balloon, and you'll feel over the days of the retreat that you're getting more energy, usually. I mean, you'll feel up and down, but there's more. Often you'll find yourself getting involved in kind of creative stuff when you're sitting there, like redecorating the house or, you know, writing a book, whatever you like to do. You'll start noticing this energy that can do music, you know, I mean, whatever it is that we, gardening, whatever we like. uh, That's what, we'll start using that energy creatively. On a retreat, we tend to encourage people to see if they cannot do that and take that energy and go deeper in the practice. But we, you know, we'll all lose it and we'll all do it. And then, you know, often if we do that over and over again, we use all the energy that we've built and then we crash. You know, that's where a lot of that happens where we go up and we're not used to all that energy and it's unknown territory and we don't know how to take it and go deeper. So we tend to use it up thinking because it's familiar and safe, but it's also wonderfully creative. So in our daily life, I mean, I know so many people who will sit and then do something creative because there's, whether it's painting or whatever it is that we like to do, the energy that is coming in the stillness and the, um, the peace of mind leads toward a, a, a cre- accessing that level that you've all, I'm sure, been working with a lot on the retreat, the creative level. And also, too, our brain mindfulness and using skillful means in the creative process. Anything you want to share about that? I mean, oftentimes creativity can be something will come in and you'll, you'll just, you'll go on, on the ride. Mm-hmm. And you'll whatever your creative flow is, documenting it or drawing it or whatever it might be. What I'm just thinking about mindfulness in on that journey, noting things and have you had experience with that? Yeah, well I think it you know, Steve was talking last night about the spontaneity, what did you call it? Enlightened spontaneity. <laughs> that the more in the moment that we really truly are, uh, the more there's a connection to what we do, to our creativeness. Now, sometimes taking mindful pauses in our work seems appropriate when we get lost or confused. But more often than not, I think it's a question of trusting, of just trust, and totally surrendering into the act, just losing yourself into it, and not trying to chop up creative moments by, uh, uh, by trying to by trying to be mindful, if you see what I'm saying. It's a kind of surrender, let it go, completely forget yourself into the process. You already practice. And then sometimes you just have to trust that presence of mind. Things like pausing, just taking time where you just stop, connect again with your body or your breath or something, just to remember to be present, and then go back at it. See, in this, pla- in, this where, in this retreat space, it sometimes at first seems like we're chopping up experience, 
uh, while we're kind of getting the engine of bare attention going in this way. But after once it once it goes, it just flows, and we're not trying to divide everything up. And in the outer end, uh, the bare awareness expands sort of into everything we do, more of a choiceless awareness. In daily life, it's not like we have the, we go through the day using this this quality of bare attention. And to do so might very well feel like we're chopping up our experience in a way that we can't just naturally be with it. So in daily life it's more of a global awareness, more creative energy and understanding, what's called clear comprehension, is brought into our activities and relationships. In, uh, well, here we're sitting six times a day, what would, would you suggest back home, you know, the amount of time to sit or, you know, how, how much should one practice when you're home? I know everyone's individual, but is there some sort of, of recommended starting point? Or something? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I can make time. Yeah. Really, as much as you feel moved to do it, uh, Generally, if one can sit or practice at least once a day, they find that uh, there's some sort of way of touching in, sort of survival. If you can sit maybe two times a day, it's considered often maintenance. It pretty much keeps up uh, a fairly, it can feed a fairly strong flow of awareness throughout your day. Uh, And anything more than that can be considered progress. (laughs) progress. <laughs> you know, that, that you actually might feel quite steadily mindful, quite seamlessly aware throughout the day. Uh, but that's, no, that's, a, that's a generality, and you have to really determine for yourself. Just think of it this way, that in any one moment, we're either present or lost in thought, forgetful, in what happens mostly for us of those two choices. And then from that understanding, without judging it, we try to do that which most helps uh, being in the present, as opposed to being forgetful. Another question. I was uh, noticing that I uh, am more attached to a morning sit and have aversion to the 2.15 sit. So, uh, if that being the case, knowing that I have this attachment and aversion, Well, I try to become equanimous about it, but you notice how many 215 sits I came to. <laughs> <laughs> Around establishing a daily practice, for those of us who have not yet established a daily practice, it can be daunting to think about, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes every day. It's like, where am I going to get the time? Because we're all too busy already. So, in order to cultivate a daily practice and develop some confidence in your practice and the fact that you can do it, I would say, look carefully at your schedule and 
find that amount of time that you can commit to sit every day. And maybe that's only five minutes. Maybe you can only say, my life is too busy, but I'll do, I can find five minutes. Or maybe it's 15. Okay, I can find 15 minutes. And then find the time, the place, and the commitment to do that. And, and make that commitment for a week. And then do it. And if that worked, make, keep that commitment for another week. And that way you get a little bit of confidence and support. Because you see, oh, I can do 15 minutes. Well, maybe after a month, you see the benefit. You actually feel the benefit of 15 minutes a day. And you say, I think I can handle 20. <laughs> make a commitment and be, have some integrity with yourself. If you make a commitment, then do it. And maybe it'll hurt. Maybe you'll have to stretch on some days. It's like, I don't have 20 minutes, but I've made a commitment, I'm going to do it anyway. In time, even if you only increment five minutes a month, in a year you'll be sitting an hour a day. And for firmly and confidently establishing a practice in your life, a year is not a bad time. It's for something that's going to uh, benefit you and be with you for the rest of your life. So, that's kind of a, a practical uh, suggestion for establishing a daily practice. You know, to think you're going to go home and suddenly you're going to sit for 45 minutes in the morning and 45 minutes in the afternoon if you've never sat at a home practice. Maybe one or two days, maybe you'll even do it for a week and then you'll skip a few days and then you'll be so undermined and lack of confidence and whatever. You won't get back to it until you do another retreat six months later. Don't do it that way. Do it a more reasonable, practical, graduated commitment that builds confidence, energy, and you see the benefit. Once you see the benefit of doing a daily practice, it'll be easy to keep it up. I saw your hand. I wonder if you could address the, uh, that proposition once, uh, once, once I've been to retreats, I've always found the next few days quite difficult afterwards because you don't realize how vulnerable you are, how quiet you are, and there's, a, there's an expansion and then there's a reflexive kind of um, contraction and uh, irritability, and I always find that really much higher actually after retreats. Um, and I wondered if you had any you know, guidelines around like how to let go of that uh, the safety and the quietness to go back out there where you're just assaulted immediately, uh, usually at airports or wherever it is we're going and it's it's like you've entered this different world. Um, I'm going to found myself sitting at Boston Airport, you know, <laughs> 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 some little corner on the floor, four thousand, <laughs> like hoping it will all go away or something. Because we've been stuck there for maybe a few hours. <laughs> Most airports have prayer rooms. Yeah, well, they have, I and mean, they have music going. 
We have in Boston Airport. There's a prayer room with continual yeah. hymns going. I've been in there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not quiet. Right. I mean, once you've been quiet, you realize how much it's not available mm-hmm. out there. It's almost instant and safe. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a, we're all full of goodwill, kindness, and so forth, um, pretty much. You don't take at least for trying <laughs> get back out there. It's not quite the same at all. <laughs> I do not get turtles. <laughs> End up back in your, you know, your, your story, Steve, about the... Um, the big Hawaiian guy at the airport? Airport, that's right. I mean, it's exactly the sort of situation I'll end up in. Airports I mean, are the worst. I, 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 I accosted the guys who were going hunting in the woods, right? You can't get there to shoot those little animals. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they're going to do. So, got me got Perfect equanimity. <laughs> Sometimes oh, it's really nothing you, can, nothing you can do. I remember having like a two-day notice after being seven months or something practicing in Burma, two days notice to leave. All foreigners had to leave. This is like in 1981 or something. And so in two days, I came out of intensive practice, months and months and months of intensive practice. I was at the airport. And the Rangoon airport is very small. The whole airport is as big as this room. And there were, there were about a thousand people stuffed into it. And I was sitting there in my monk's robes, at a chair, and a tour group of 75 Japanese people, uh. one at a time, sat next to me. They have their picture taken. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there was nowhere to go. I'd already come through customs with my passport stamp. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything but sit there. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want. Being in your body, going back again to the travel question that Michael asked, it, for, for me, the more I can be in my body and just feel everything through the body, body emotion, body sensation, body thought, the, in the process of traveling, the more anchored I can be with what is happening. I really find that quite effective. Airports, airplanes, cars, the first few days after retreats, just continually coming back to the body, because that's usually the first thing we split off from when we're feeling that contraction and irritability and uh, separation from the moment. Somehow we leave our bodies. If If you use that first foundation of mindfulness, I find it exceedingly comforting and helpful. One of, one of the things that I think happens is that because we're not, we're so protected here that the feeling of assault is actually a lot of energy will come in the body that we're not used to taking in on an energy level. I don't, for those of you who have left retreats before, I think you'll find that the first few nights you might not sleep so well, for example, because, you know, if you talk, you know, when I start talking, I can't stop. You know, and there's a way in which I'll get involved in, <laughs> in talking. And I can't stop myself. And then, you know, it might be eight hours later, 
and it's time for bed, and it's like, uh, 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 you know, the whole body is just like electric, you know, it's just, <laughs> and I've tried to learn over the years, you know, usually I say goodbye to a retreat, and I know that I'm really switching worlds, and it's painful, you know, it's, a, it's really, there's nothing that can make, for me, that's the hardest part of a retreat, is leaving it, and it's, ex- I, I think of it as excruciating, not, you know, just excruciating. And no matter how you do it, I mean, it's easier if you drive off somewhere by yourself, actually, because you, it's a little more protected when you have to get on a bus and a plane. And if you're with a lot of people, you're bound to not be able to stop talking. You know, it's just the way it is. And then you get home and eventually you get in bed and it's like... But after a few days, it, you shift. And I recommend to people to take aspirin. <laughs> You know, really, you know, if, it, if you get a headache, just remember that it's only because you're not used to taking in so much stimulation. And all the problem is around taking in so much stimulation. And I do anything um, to try to get away to a quiet place. I use bathrooms a lot. You know, actually bathrooms can be quieter than chapels. You know, and it's like any way that I can find to get off to a little bit of a quiet place. In an airport, I look around and I find the place where the fewest people are sitting, for example. You can usually put your bags down and lean against a wall somewhere and find a little quiet place, except in the Rangoon airport. Uh, But it's essential to be able to, which for me was the hardest thing, to remove myself from talking or to remove myself you know, from places where I knew I needed to get quiet, whether it was home or whatever. It's just, uh, it took me time to learn to do that. I wouldn't do it, and then I'd get these terrible headaches. Uh, but the, the worst that can happen is that you have to take an aspirin, really. Uh, <clears throat> can you talk about re-entry with partners or spouses, and particularly about that thing of talking, because I've had times when I've just not said a word, and then he talks all the time, and I get mad because he's taking up all this space, and then other times when I talk, and then I get mad because (laughs) I feel like I've given myself away. So just anything about re-entry with partners. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, we've had some long years. <laughs> uh, one of the some of the worst ones were when Steve would be doing metta for months, and I'd be doing vipassana for months, and we'd come out in completely different places. And so when he'd be doing metta for a long time, he'd come out and he'd be like, "Oh, you know," <laughs> and I'd be doing vipassana for months, and it would be like, you know, just so in a different space, and then the next time we'd sit, I'd do metta for a long time, and he'd do vipassana, and it'd be like, hello! <laughs> you know, you, get, you come out in different spaces, and it would take time to really adjust to where each other is. And it, it's like, when you're the person at home, in a partnership, and the other person's on a retreat, when you're home, you're doing, you know, you're taking out the garbage, you're working, you're, you know, you're, you're just carrying the load. For the, and, the, and there tends to be a slight difficulty in adjusting to the person coming home. 
And then often there's some subtle un- unconscious resentment of the person. You know, the people at home think you're on a vacation. And then they tend to wonder why you're coming back like, ah, you know, they think that you should be coming back altogether and rested. And, you know, you're really vulnerable. Um, and that there's all these things. It's like if you're the person away after two weeks of sitting or three weeks, it's really hard to get back in and start cooking dinner and running to the store and talking on the phone. And it's just different worlds colliding. And, and the most important thing to remember is that it's just only, it's just a shifting of a world. And it takes care and gentleness. Um, it's, for me, it's that same thing that I said before, where if we, if we talk too much, it's not good. And if we don't talk enough, it's not good. But we've only learned it from doing everything the wrong way. You know, we've learned it the hard way. It, and I don't see that there's any... Um, you know, like, one of the nicest things to do is to go for a quiet walk, for example, and maybe do half silent and half talking. If you can manage... You know, if both people can manage it, it's a beautiful way to be together and not not kind of stuck in a room somewhere, but with a lot of space, and for e- to, to have the quiet time together and then the talking time, I find that to be a really helpful. And to ask for the space when you need it. Just to ask for their un- awareness or understanding. Yeah. Because that's, a lot of times it's, I come out and just, things can be overwhelmingly uh, intense that come in through the sense doors, and although it's really nice to connect again, you know, Michelle was often wanting to just want to know or say everything, and all that's just coming in so much, and so for a while I just should check out <laughs> and not listen. You know, she said, "Well, what do you think about that?" And I say, "What? <laughs> what did you say? Can you please repeat that?" You know, half-hour dialogue, but then. <laughs> But then I think we've grown, as she said, you know, Pastor, I'm just saying, I, can we just be silent now? And it's so understood and accepted. So it's an important thing to be able to communicate to partners and understand that it's not a rejection. Even though it feels like one. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you talk a little about the length of sitting when we go back? Because... Uh, like a lot of Zen sittings are half an hour. This is 45 minutes. The traditional style is an hour in Southeast Asia. Does it matter? Uh, my schedule is, is so strange that sometimes I'll have hours when I can just sit and sometimes I'll have to like stick in a half hour here and there. Is, is the most important thing just to, to pick a certain time and stick to it all the time or can you be flexible depending on circumstances? Everybody is different for setting up their own sitting schedule at home and whatever works for you. Some people are not going to want to have a schedule. They're just not scheduled people there, you know, whatever, through the day. And when they feel it's right, they'll sit. And there are others of us that just, you know, first, you know, first thing in the morning I get up and sit. Uh, then I got the rest of the day. Or there are other people that will have another time or place to do. 
as far as length of time to sit, after or if one has established a daily practice, generally a longer sit develops more samadhi. But certainly two shorter sits, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, gets your day off well and clears out your day at the, at the end. But everybody's going to have their own <coughs> um, preference and what works, what works. I mean, that's, that's the important thing. Re- what really works for you? What can you actually do? You know, without uh, twisting yourself in a knot about I should be and judging yourself, I should be doing two sittings, I should be sitting 45. I, don't, don't bother that. Just do what you actually can do. You know, and then build on that. One yogi friend uh, leads one of those... Uh, archetypal New York City busy lives, just uh, 5 a.m. till midnight kind of thing. But he came to retreats enough to feel so much, to feel so blessed and gifted by the retreat that he committed himself to every night before he goes to bed to at least get in the posture. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the very minimum he would do was one second of meditation. But it was very powerful because just the posture itself is how many hours you've been doing this over three weeks now. It, it's so it's, you're so uh, acclimated to the interior energy of what happens when you sit that more often than not he'd sit beyond one second. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even if it was one second, just getting in that posture is, is a powerful imprint and reminder on the psyche of what this is all about, of what, one's, what his life was about. So, you know, of course, as Steve is saying, you know, the longer, the more samadhi, the more focus. Uh, but if you can even just get in the posture at times when you don't think you can, it sends a, it sends a deep message to the heart. But on times when I do have the time, it is good to go yeah. for a 45-minute yeah. yeah. yeah, I, I found that in my early years of practice, the first time I did a retreat, I didn't sit at home for three more years. You know, like I didn't... I just didn't keep it up. Um, but I used to always sit outside and be quiet a lot, but it wasn't like formal sitting in a, on a zafu or bench in my house. But then, then there was a certain point where I wanted to do it, so I started to do it. But I would notice that when I would go over 45 minutes, that time between the 45 minutes and an hour, something would quiet in me, like, you know, the whole day, you know, it's like there'd be all this stuff going through my mind and it wouldn't seem quiet. And then something would shift between 45 minutes and an hour. And even if my whole, you know, even if I was thinking for 55 minutes, that last five minutes, I would come, I'd feel a breath, you know. (laughs) I mean, that's that's sort of the level it is. It's like a a life raft. It's not like... (laughs) You're sitting there for an hour being perfectly mindful. You know, you think it's hard here, but when you're busy in your life and all this stuff is happening, I would notice that after the last five minutes, I would get, I would just finally get there. Oh, <laughs> yay, a breath. You know, that's how my sittings were for most of my years of, of daily practice were just that feeling of cleaning out and cleaning out and cleaning out and cleaning out and, cleaning out and then... <gasps> Oh yeah, a breath. It's it's really 
Michelle mentions a good point. I have found a daily practice <clears throat> to be really challenging in that the experience during the actual sitting is often nothing like can get here. It's like you sit down and it's just sleepiness or just restlessness for the whole time. And, the, and, the, and your little buzzer rings, you know, your little beeper, digital beeper goes beep, 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 and 45 minutes have gone by and you say, what a waste of time. It wasn't. You might not have found or noticed one breath. You might have been totally lost in fantasy or totally reviewing the day or whatever, and you think, well, this is a waste of time, and judge yourself. It's not. It is more valuable to sit there and be restless or sleepy or whatever it is, whether it's early morning or late night, than to be continuing to generate more activity with whatever you'd be doing. So it is important to let go of your expectations and we'll have them. I mean, we'll go home and we think that we can sit at home like we did here or have a similar type experience. Don't torture yourself with that expectation, really. So, you know, like Nike says, just do it. Just sit. No expectations, no judgments. Just sit. Um, I sort of have a four-part question. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what the four parts are so when I forget you can remind me. One is, um, I feel like I missed this retreat. Two is, what about deciding like three months, two years, how do you know when it's time to really go for it? Three is, um, oh, I've already forgotten. Oh, the teacher thing. And... <laughs> Can you be more specific? <laughs> <laughs> oh, addiction. Okay. So one is just, I feel like I, I miss this retreat. Like, um, you know, I was present with like sensations, but they weren't really intense. You know, I just throb, 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 throb. You know, I kept trying to go deeper, but I didn't really. I just throbbed or whatever it was I was doing. And so part of me is afraid that I really missed it. And um, part of me thinks that that's like kind of where what it is. You know, you just sit and throb in peace or something. So That's a better, that's a, it's getting closer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, we tend to, deep is really getting here, how it is. So here is just throbbing sometimes. Some, and sometimes it's so insubstantial. I mean, often the more people see clearly, the more insubstantial it is, experience. And it's like people will just be like, is that all life is, you know? But it's pretty just throbbing. You know, it is heat, pressure, tingling. But what about going deeper? You go deeper into the heat pressure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I'm saying it's a melodrama in my life, and I just didn't have any of this retreat. So. Which, which is a really good sign. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so I didn't miss it. That's yeah. one. That's good, because otherwise I was going to ask to stay. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you passed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kept trying to get you to tell me that in interviews, but you were too equanimous.
So two is addiction. I think that thinking is a total addiction, and I just watch myself slide back into it when I go home. And you know, I'll start with meditating. I even have a meditation sponsor who I call if I don't meditate because I'm so addicted to not meditating. <laughs> but seriously, I have spiritual anorexia. I just starve myself of what feels good. But um, but I do. I think it's a, an addiction. I just get more and more addicted and. It's almost like, why on earth would I go back to the bottle? You know, here I have gone to detox. It doesn't, I don't understand why you go back. And how you, how you, how the major thing we do with our lives is addiction. Um, the third part well, let is... Me, I want to speak to that one. Because um, I, think you, I think you bring up a really good point. Our habit of living in our thoughts... You know, the living in our conceptual world and planning and who we are and reflecting on who we are and how to become and do and get and have and be happy is a habit. But it is a deeply, deeply, deeply conditioned habit. Not just this lifetime. And so we may be looking at a habit that is hundreds, if not thousands or more, lifetimes deep. Now wait a minute. And we come to a retreat for two weeks and we say, hey, how come I'm still thinking? <laughs> you know, hey, well, wait a minute. You know, I've, I've been practicing for a week or a year or even 20 years. How come I'm still thinking? Are you using more habit a, different than addiction though? Same thing. Okay. Just Unconscious behavior that you just indulge in. And it's the, what, what, the task that we've, we've chosen to undertake here of awakening and freeing the mind from its addictions is tremendous. I mean, this is, we could say, a huge, or we could say this is an extremely subtle and very noble endeavor. So it's really helpful to keep that perspective that we are looking to turn the tide on our entire past karmic momentum. And that is, I mean, put that into your computer and give yourself a break. But still, if you've been an alcoholic for a thousand lifetimes, you still don't go to detox and then start with the gin again. It, I, think, I, mean, I think it's not, it's not the same thing as an addiction because you're not born drinking and we it's like we have ears and in the practice we have ears and then we hear but we don't think that we're trying to get rid of hearing and we have eyes and we see and in the practice we don't try to get rid of seeing and with each sense door but when we get to thought thought is just another sense door it's just the mind, and the mind thinks. And so we don't, the idea is not getting rid of it. It's not an addiction. It, the addiction is getting, is whatever's fueling the problem. So aversion and attachment tend to be having us, when we're not aware of that that's what's happening, that's what enables us to get so lost in thinking. 
that that's the addiction is the aversion and the attachment and and so and, and and this is something we're born with it's like that's what we this is the human world there's a reason why we're here we're not a chipmunk we're not a deva and those a chipmunk has a very different world they're not as they're not thinking types you know they they have you know really like whales have a different we're all different. There's this incredible diversity. Uh, we're in the human world, and there's, I do believe there's some reason why we got born here. And then there's this predicament. This is, our, this is a species. And then we're male or female, and it seems like we're different species as well. You know, there's these different species. And uh, thinking is something that, talk about something you have to get used to. It's really, we're not going to get rid of it. It's, it's much more that you develop, you know, this incredible, over time, strength not to get so lost in it and not to judge when one does. Yeah, it's just like, it's just like getting muscles. It's, it's the mindfulness muscle. Yeah. Is it okay to ask the other two or should I? I have to stop in five minutes. Yeah. Um, well, ask the fourth one first. Um, in the old days of pre-internet techno travel world, modernity, whatever, um, you found a teacher and then the teacher lived in the same place as you because they weren't going to like get on their horse cart and go like miles away or something. But here, you know, I... You know, I've said this to you all before, I come here and I feel like I want you to be my teachers ongoing, not 10 days every year. Like, all these problems come up and these questions and, you know, I feel like I haven't been able to really find a teacher where I live that whose um, mindfulness I trust. So, what about this? You know, you got you all. You got to see in Burma for five years, and I don't know how long you were there, Steve. I mean, you've all had your teachers who were there for prolonged periods. Do you have to give everything up to stay in place for five years to have a teacher with you? <laughs> or what do people do in the modern age when they still need a rabbi or whatever? <laughs> this is one of the current dilemmas of Buddhism or this, you know, this kind of practice coming to the West. There are lots of places where people want to practice and currently there are not as many uh, preferred teachers as there are places. And so, you know, we have bigger centers like East Coast, West Coast. There's a number of smaller centers and teachers do live somewhere. If you really, you know, want to be with a particular teacher, move there. Some people are, and, and they're there for some of the time, some of the time. But, it, you know, different teachers are different. Some teachers are, are trying to stay home more, and some are, you know, just um, having a, a different kind of teaching, uh, particularly doing retreats. You know, all three of us teach retreats very difficult to stay in one place and just continue teaching retreats. Some other teachers like Larry Rosenberg in, in Boston, he lives there, he does a city thing. And he has a big 
you know, center there. Or in LA, there's a couple of people that have big centers there. So it's 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 different, but keep asking. Keep asking. Yeah. I, do you no, I'm just going to put yeah. other questions. Anybody else with questions in the back? Yeah. Yes. I wanted to ask uh, this of you. All three of you have talked uh, and, and talked about your families and referred to your families with difficulties and family. And, <laughs> and uh, Steve, when he uh, does the method, he ends the, uh, the sitting with your, your, your merits, may they benefit your family. And uh, I too have a family very small left now, uh, just a brother and a sister, and they don't particularly like me. Um, mm. And I left home very young, and uh, I don't know whether it's that they don't particularly like me or whether they're, uh, they think I'm very odd, and um, they're probably quite right. <laughs> and, um, but, so I come from a, a Christian tradition of thinking, well, you know, a prophet is never known in his own country. And, <laughs> but, and also in my Buddhist uh, life, I also think, you know, I miss them. I, there's no doubt, I miss them. And they're in me, and it's a loss. I feel the loss of them. Uh, but I think, I'll get them next time. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with them next time. And I'm tired. I, I realized actually on the INS about uh, seven years ago, I remember pacing up and down the tennis court thinking, I will not do one more thing to sort of push myself with my family to, to, to do that. I will let them come to me. I will see what they want with me. And they wanted a damn thing. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, I, I don't know though, and I really heard you all this time, I don't know whether it's, that's what for me is to work out, whether I should keep going towards it, and, and you know, on the karmic, uh, on my karmic level, whether that's the family I chose, that's the family I've got, and no matter whether they're 3,000 miles away, they're right sitting with me on the pillow all the time. So is it important that I work out with my that family? I mean, I certainly have another family now that I have uh, you know, close friends and associates and men from Auckland. But those are still my blood. And, you know, and, you know, I choose partners all the time that are just like my brother. And, uh, so that's my question, and I know that you've all had uh, and I don't know whether to, you know, to cross those three thousand miles again physically and and appear there. And I know that something in me just irritates them to death, and uh, so like that. <laughs> well, I think we tend to repeat our families, so we don't ever get away from them. Um, and 
It just depends on the type of family. You know, we all, if you asked each one of us, you'd see that we all have very different kinds of families. Uh, I think it's, I have a family more like yours where if I don't stay in touch, they won't. I mean, my father lives an hour from here and he's never been here. He has no idea what I do. Um, You know, so that's pretty distant, even though it's so close. Um, And that's, I find that I have found the distance where I don't feel harmed by my family, but that I know I still love them. So I find that I go in to it when I, when I feel like I want to or when I can. So if you want to fly there, it's really you that makes that decision. You know, that you're, in some ways, you're in control of how much you're going to move into it because they're not moving into your world. And it really, that's really up to you, you know, when you... Am I missing something on the spiritual path by not dealing with those chosen... No, because you're going to repeat it. Yeah, so there's, I mean, it doesn't matter. You're going to find your mother and your father and your brothers and your sister. Right in this room. (laughs) I'm sure you've, yeah, you've had them all here. Yeah. There's nothing like a retreat to find family. Other questions about that? I do, yeah. Do you want Linda to? I have to. Questions? Linda, and then we should stop, yeah. I have a question about um, daily practice versus retreat, in the sense that I'm lined up the easiest, fastest road. (laughs) (laughs) My experience also is that uh, daily practice is painful. It's like the first hour of the retreat every time I step. Mm -hmm. And I find that retreat I get above a certain gravitational pull that then, you know, every retreat I, I, I feel myself going deeper, opening more. And in some way I would rather, it's easier for me to make sure I come to enough retreats to each enough versus um, the feeling of not really getting anywhere in a different doing it every day, except that um, as I've done it every day, it does make a difference in that day. You know, so I'm sort of contradicting myself in a way. If you only rely on the good feeling from sitting, you'll be disappointed sooner or later in your daily practice. If you rely more on the trust, on the confidence in it, on the commitment to it as something that you know is good, though not always pleasurable, and sometimes quite the contrary, there's more of a chance of it uh, grafting into your life in that way. Into well, your being. Into your being. When I first, uh, uh, my first, um, about 15 years ago, when I came back from one of my long times in Asia, I went to the dentist and had all kinds of, you know, fillings and stuff, 15 or you know, all kinds of things that went wrong. And so my dentist, who I love dearly, he, he sicked his dental hygienist on me to give me a lecture about flossing. And she, she uh, did this by, um, she treated me like she does when she teaches uh, first graders. She pulled out these pictures of 
of what the plaque is. And she said, see this? And the picture showed me a picture. What does that look like? I said, well, Brenda, it looks like mashed potatoes. <laughs> and she said, these mashed potatoes are actually little worms. They're very small little worms. And you had a microscope. You could see those little worms in there. And she basically intimidated me into flossing every day for the past 15 years. <laughs> he never misses. He never misses. It's incredible. The, the difference is that I haven't had any fillings or major teeth problems in those years. It's the same attitude that you might take with sitting. In that, <laughs> it's like the little worms, the little worms that squirm around in the heart, in the mind. You start feeling after a while that you're, it's that inner ablution, that inner cleansing, that happens from keeping up a fairly regular sitting, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. You begin to connect with the good of it. We have to, we have to, we're sort of five minutes over, so, but if there's, we'll have a circle tomorrow. I'm going to see you at the interview, yeah. right, so I can answer your yeah. question. Okay. Enjoy.